0: You're listening to the Oxfam Podcast, the show where we share our learning and knowledge with the sector, so you can hear how we work, how we think, and why we do what we do. Remember, you can subscribe to us on all your usual podcast providers.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Oxfam Podcast. I'm Simone Lombardini, Impact Evaluation Lead at Oxfam. As part of our RealGit series today, I'm speaking with Jenny Vonk, Impact Evaluation Advisor, who has recently published a guideline with the title Privacy and Data Security under GDPR for Quantitative Impact Evaluation. Jenny, thank you for joining us.
0: Yes, thank you for having me. How are you doing today?
1: Yeah, it's good. It's exciting having you today. We've been working on this for quite a while, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I've been working on this since I joined Oxfam back in 2018.
1: Exciting to to share this with with the listeners. Before we start, let me give a bit of introduction. So, This guideline was published under the Going Digital series, where we explore and share our learning in using new digital technologies in evaluation and research. As we know, digital technology can enable greater participation and inclusiveness from traditional research and evaluation methods. And also more and more interventions are taking place in digital spaces and social media. Therefore, research and evaluation methods needs to keep pace and being able to use data and new technologies in a way which is responsible and ethical. Jenny, to start with, can you explain to the listeners what is GDPR?
0: Sure. So, GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation, and I guess many of those listening have already encountered it. In short, it's a broad set of rules set out by the European Union, aimed at protecting people's fundamental right to privacy. And it describes how personal information can be gathered, analyzed, shared, and stored. It came into effect in 2018 as i was saying uh, around the same time that i was joining oxfam it applies to everyone in the eu and given its broad scope we take the approach that it also involves everyone else that we work with outside the eu globally and of course we also have to consider in each country where we work the local privacy laws that exist so especially now following gdpr there are also many countries that are adopting new privacy laws so Kenya and Ethiopia are just two examples. And when we think about human rights, which is really the core of our work, GDPR is more important than just a legal requirement because it aligns with our values. So back in 2015, several years before GDPR, we had also published Oxfam's responsible data policy to affirm this rights-based approach to working with personal information in our programs. And it outlines five key points. These five key points are the right to be counted and heard, the right to dignity and respect, the right to make an informed decision, the right to privacy, and the right to not be put at risk.
1: Thank you, Jenny, uh, to explain what GDPR is and also to make the connection to Oxfam's responsible data policy. A lot of our work consists in designing, managing, and conducting rigorous impact evaluations and research to understand and learn from Oxfam's interventions. So, Jenny, how does GDPR and, uh, and also Oxfam's responsible data policy relate with our work as impact evaluation advisors?
0: So as impact evaluation advisors, in order to carry out our work, which includes usually collecting primary data, for example, by gathering information through household surveys or key informant interviews, and in most cases this involves asking for personal data, So this might be names, people's gender, age, etc. This information is very important in order for us to understand who is benefiting from Oxfam's programs and also to what extent. And the most important thing is that we actually carry out this work ethically, which means in line with both GDPR and also our responsible data policy. That part's clear. The challenge is to understand what practical steps we need to take in order to actually live these values in our everyday work. As we're conducting impact evaluations in order to translate these policies into our practice. And that's the purpose of the latest going digital paper is to lay out the steps that we need to take in order to do this.
1: Exactly because as we know in our work there are a lot of decisions that need to be made and documenting this and making this available also to other researchers in the sector. We want this to be a tool and a starting point for conducting our work as evaluators and researchers. Jenny, let's dive into the content of the paper. In the paper, you define six stages in the data life cycle. Can you walk me through these stages?
0: Sure, and also keep in mind the six stages that are outlined in the paper are really meant to be a guide to help organize the various practices that we need to follow, and it's more meant as a general flow, not necessarily a strict linear path, in that sometimes you might need to go back and forth in your actual work between the different stages. So the six stages, I'll go through each one and give a brief definition as I go. The first one is collection and transmission. So this involves when we're actually gathering the data initially, which can be, as I mentioned, through surveys or interviews, and then the process of uploading that data for example, to a server. The second stage is storage and transfer. So this can be when we're storing that data on devices, mobile devices, such as phones or tablets, as well as laptops and servers. And then the transfer part is about when we share data with others. So often we're working with consultants. We also have interns working with our team, uh, as well as research partners at different academic institutions, for example. And often we need to share the data in order to work on research pieces together. The third stage is about processing. So this is the different steps that we take in order to clean and analyze the data and can also include pseudonymization and anonymization. The first one being where we're only removing direct identifiers such as names and working with codes instead. And anonymization is when we remove more information so that someone could not be re-identified from that data. The fourth stage is publication, so this is how we share the data in papers, presentations and data sets. The fifth stage is about retention, which defines how we keep data, especially for how long. And then following that is the sixth stage, which is destruction, which is once we are no longer going to keep the data, how we go about destroying it.
1: And Can you describe how GDPR and the responsible data policy shape decisions and practices taken in each of these stages?
0: Sure, throughout all of these stages in this data lifecycle, we need to check each practice that we're using to make sure that we're following both GDPR and our responsible data policy. We already had many procedures and tools in place for handling personal data before GDPR, and this was following standard research practices from research ethics, but GDPR was a reminder and an opportunity to systematically check and update all of these existing practices. And in that process, we developed more comprehensive guidelines to follow in our everyday work. That's how this paper came about as well.
1: Yes, I remember that. A lot of the work and practices were heavily shaped and influenced by the work of Emily Tompkins, global advisors in the ICT and development teams. So can you give me an example on how GDPR changed the way we would normally operate?
0: Yeah, and a lot of this also involves Emily, as well as us and our team, thinking through all of these practices from the responsible data policy to inform our digital data collection processes, and also what was documented in the previous going digital publications. And I think with GDPR specifically, it really focused our attention on how we transfer data internationally between different countries, and also how we carry out random sampling with participant lists in order to select who we are going to follow up with for particular impact evaluation. And how we were doing it before wasn't that much different because we already had so many good practices in place. But now I think it's better that we're taking a few extra steps to ensure people's personal data is only being used in ways that they would expect and based on specific things in their informed consent. Also, we tend to focus a lot on protecting privacy and limiting data sharing which is something that we've been focusing also in this conversation so far. But our responsible data policy also highlights the right to be counted and heard. And impact evaluations are one opportunity for people to share their experiences and to be heard and to hold Oxfam accountable. In terms of doing things differently, Oxfam's responsible data policy reminds us especially to ensure that vulnerable groups are heard, including women, and that their voices are also fully represented in the evaluation work that we do. And this links with how we're now conducting gendered impact evaluations as well, which is a commitment that we've made to also look at the differential impacts between men and women in our evaluations, as well as other relevant subgroups.
1: Thank you, Jenny. And you've been touching a lot of really important points. And let's dive into some of these. In uh, the paper, you refer to some dilemmas. Can you tell me a bit more about this?
0: Yeah. So when we're translating these policies into our practice, it's often not easy. In this process of systematically checking our practices, which I was just describing, we did encounter several dilemmas. One dilemma is around informed consent. So before collecting any data, we always obtain informed consent. And this means that the person sharing their information is actively agreeing to do so after they understand, for example, the purpose of the evaluation, what it means to participate, and including any benefits and risks, and also what will be done with their data and how they can file a complaint or request to withdraw consent. That's just a summary of a few points. There are often many other things. And the dilemma is around what it means to gain truly informed consent, because this can be very challenging. First of all, it takes time to review all of those details I just described, and people may be uninterested or intimidated by the amount of information, depending on what those different pieces of information are. And secondly, we're also often conducting impact evaluations in places where literacy is low. Uh, There's a lack of awareness around the right to privacy, and there's a variation in what privacy means to different people, and there's limited privacy protection at the national level. So in the process of gaining informed consent, We also have to make sure that we're being comprehensive to include all of those things that I mentioned at the beginning, but also not too long so that it's easy to understand and engaging.
1: Yes, you're right. And finding the right balance between language, length, comprehensive is not easy. I've heard of some cases where audio recording was used for a a consent form so that it could be played at the beginning of the interview to ensure that each respondent, was receiving exactly the same message. And I think it would be interesting also to explore something with uh, videos, for example.
0: Yeah, I think a video would be a really interesting example of something that could be engaging, assuming that's something that can be done in the location where you're working.
1: So yeah, maybe something to think for the next impact evaluation. Let's move to another dilemma, international data transfer. What can you tell me about that?
0: Yeah, we had a lot of discussions around this dilemma of international data transfer because we work globally, which means we have to transfer data across international borders. So, for example, we may be collecting data in one country and conducting the analysis in another. And GDPR's stance on this is quite strict. And the only way in that case that people's personal data can be shared is if people consent in an informed way for this to happen. And during the informed consent process, we can specifically mention this We can mention who will have access to the personal data, where those people will be based. Again, trying to describe this in a a way that's comprehensive, but also not too complicated. And while we think this is an acceptable solution for new data collection and projects that have recently started that we want to follow up on, it's not always feasible. Uh, There are cases where we need to use existing personal data, lists of participants from our partners uh, in order to request the interviews, and especially if these lists are maintained by our partners rather than Oxfam directly, it can pose additional challenges to following up.
1: Yes, And the monitoring data collected by our partners is crucial for conducting our sampling. This is another dilemma in the report, right?
0: Yes, exactly. So we had another dilemma around using existing data from partner organizations in order to do sampling which was probably the trickiest one to figure out how we can go about it and still carry out our work. Because Oxfam works mostly through partner organizations, and they are often the ones maintaining program participant lists. And ideally, their informed consent protocol will include sharing personal data with Oxfam. And this is the case in in new projects, but some projects began many years ago, before GDPR, in fact. And so if we consider this is not the case for any reason, but the lists they have are the only way for us to follow up with participants in order to understand the impact of the program, then we can still follow up with them, but we first need to tell them that we have their personal data and what we'll do with it. So this could be during our first communication with them when we reach out to them to invite them for an interview. Now, this works if we follow up with all of the participants on the list. That's fine. But... We often use random sampling. So for instance, there may be a list of 10,000 participants from the program, and we're only going to follow up with 1,000 of them. And notifying the 9,000 who were not selected in most places where we work would be an enormous effort that would be infeasible because we would have to send out team members to various communities across the country or the region to go door to door and tell each of those 9,000 people that we have their data and what we plan to do with it.
1: Yes, and this sounds quite a big effort. What were the options that were identified to comply with GDPR?
0: So we have two options. The first option is to work with the partner to carry out the random sampling using pseudonyms, so no direct identifiers. You may use a list of numbers that have been randomly generated in order to identify the, in this case, 1,000 people that we want to interview, and then we only ever have the personal information for those 1,000 people, and we're able to follow up with them and notify them during the communication when we invite them for the new interview. The second option, if no other options are available, because we're only processing the data for a very short period of time in a way that poses minimal risk, and then subsequently delete the personal data for those who are not randomly sampled, we can consider that notifying effective people of this use might actually cause more disruption than any agency in enables. We would essentially follow up with them to say, we have your data and we deleted it. In the worst case, we may choose to work with these data while considering that additional notification like this would be disproportionate under these circumstances. But this should only be seen as the last possible option if we've exhausted every other choice.
1: And I think all these reinforce the message that we need to invest more in quality data, especially in a strong processes and procedure for data collected by our partners.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Okay, Jenny. so you have a lot of experience in, uh, in conducting uh, fieldwork and, uh, and data collection in different countries. I was wondering if you can give me an example from a recent fieldwork you've been involved in where you faced one of these dilemmas and what did you do?
0: Well, I don't know if it's a unique example, but I was recently working on an impact evaluation of an urban water sanitation and hygiene project in Freetown, Sierra Leone. In order to carry out the data collection for that evaluation, we were working together with a local consultant, and that consultant is managing a team of interviewers who are the ones responsible for carrying out the data collection. Before we started any data collection, we first had a three-day training with the team, which included a day of pilot testing and this is standard for all of our impact evaluations and during the training research ethics including data privacy is one of the main topics that we cover as well as reviewing what the content of the interview will be and how to address each of the questions that may come up during the interview and the informed consent process in particular as usual was a point of a lot of discussion amongst the team And of course, we have a text written on the survey form itself, but for them to read the text, that's not enough to ensure truly informed consent. And so they also need to understand and own the process to be prepared to provide additional information and to explain what it means, and also in the local language, in this case, Creole. So in order to do this, we have developed as part of our enumerator training pack In our team, a way to go through this together and in that process, link each point or each sentence in the informed consent protocol to GDPR and Oxfam's responsible data policy to make sure that the whole team understands why each point is there and how to answer additional questions about it if needed.
1: Yes, and I remember that. And that's connect with the work that you and Alexa Pretari, our colleague Impact evaluation Advisors in the team, have been doing in uh, updating the enumerator training pack, right? Including all the most recent safeguarding procedures.
0: Yes, exactly. With the new safeguarding procedures as well as GDPR and also just pulling it together with all of the different things that we're always covering in our enumerator trainings.
1: Okay, let's now move on to uh, the appendixes. So we say that this wants to be a very practical tool. So something that we as impact evaluation advisors, but also our colleagues and researchers can take and use to build on. And uh, the paper concludes with uh, some tools in the appendix. Can you describe me what these tools are?
0: Yes, and actually throughout the paper, there are many links to other various resources. The appendix has four specific examples, and the disclaimer about these is that they're meant to be used more like reminders rather than a prescription. Each time before using, the tools need to be adapted based on the context and the needs of the specific evaluation that you're working on. The first appendix is an example informed consent protocol, and it has various spaces to fill in additional details based on the exact topic of the evaluation that you're working on as well as who is involved and what countries you're working in. The second appendix is an example of Oxfam's device setup guidelines, which is essentially a checklist to ensure data security on the mobile devices that are being used to collect data in the case of digital data collection, uh, as well as other things like maximizing battery life. The third appendix is an example personal data processing agreement. So this is something that we use whenever we're going to work with a consultant or a research partner or an intern, and it lays out the various requirements in terms of what they need to do when working with any personal data that we've shared with them under their contract or agreement. And then Appendix 4 is an example pseudonymization and anonymization protocol, which lays out the steps first for pseudonymization of data sets, and then continues for further cleaning to fully anonymize data sets.
1: So thank you, Jenny. I think this has been a really interesting discussion, particularly the effort in bridging the gap between a policy that is written on paper and the reality of our work, which is quite complex and challenging. And I also enjoy the particular attention in the paper on how choices are made and their implications, both at legal as well as ethical level.
0: I'm really happy with where we've come and where the paper is at right now in terms of improving all of our processes and practices. But at the same time, it's something that isn't static. So we need to keep improving it. And also for those listening, we're open to feedback and discussion. We'd be interested to hear if others have faced similar dilemmas and what you're doing about them as well.
1: Yes, excellent point. Thank you, Janie. And thank you also to all our listeners for tuning in. And if you'd like to access to the paper, please see the link on this page or visit the Oxford Policy and Practice website. And remember, if you want to hear more from our Real Geek series, you can subscribe to this show on all major podcast providers. Bye.